Amen. If you have a Bible and you want to join me, I'm in Esther chapter 4 today. We're doing a series in the book of Esther, and uh, it's a series that the, the book itself, the book of Esther, is a book that helps us to, to deal with those seasons in life where it feels like God is missing. Because in the book itself, God is never mentioned. Now, obviously, he's implied, he is there, he's at work in profound ways, but from a literary standpoint, the narrator goes out of their way to omit God, to keep God out of the story, and it just shows us that there, there are seasons where the circumstances are hard to interpret, and if you're looking at it just kind of through the lens of a human perspective, you're going, this is not good. So in the story of Esther, it's not good that the people of God are in dispersion, and they're uh, ruled in the Persian Empire, and they're in all these different places, and then they come to find out that there's, a, there's an order to execute them. And they just, if you look at the, the details of the circumstances, you go, this is really, really bad. And where is God? But what we come to find out is that God behind the scenes is actively at work caring for and saving his people. Well, if you've not been here in the last couple of weeks, let me catch you up to speed really quick. Esther is a young lady who had an opportunity to basically enter a beauty pageant to become a replacement queen for a previous queen named Vashti. And the king of Persia did not like what Vashti did, so he deposed her of her position, created a beauty pageant, and then selected the winner to become the future queen. And that's who Esther is in the story. She is the young lady who entered into that contest and won. Now her cousin Mordecai is the one who has raised her and has been instrumentally involved in her life all along. And uh, he appears to have a royal position within the court itself. And he finds out about a, a plot to execute the king, and he reveals that. And uh, you would expect that he would be rewarded for that. But then there's a surprise feature. A different dude gets elevated and rewarded, a guy by the name of Haman. And Haman gets elevated and rewarded, and a decree is issued that everyone has to bow down to Haman. When they see this guy, you, you pay him respect. And Mordecai says, I cannot do that, I will not do that, and he does not bow. And that makes Haman so angry that he thinks to himself, I don't just want to do harm to this guy, I want to do harm to this guy and all his people. And he connivingly comes up with a plan to write a decree that on a certain date, all of Mordecai's people should be terminated. And the king signs off on it. The decree is translated and sent out in all these different directions, and we pick it up in chapter 4. And what we find is the people of God are in despair. Let's look at it in verses 1 to 3. The people of God are in despair. In response to this decree that on a certain day they're going to be destroyed, they respond with mourning. Look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done... Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He's mourning. He's looking at the circumstances and he is lamenting them. He's grieving over them. So he's putting on sackcloth and ashes. He's putting on the, the clothing of mourning. Now, we, um, we don't have an, an exact situation in our culture that translates in the same way. I mean, sometimes we'll go to a funeral and we'll, we'll wear all black. Uh, but I, I like wearing black, and it doesn't always mean that I'm on my way to a funeral. 
So I could either be a ninja or I could be, you know, on a way to a place where, like a, a wait staff. I remember when I was a waiter, I had to wear all black. So, so that could be the case. Or you could be going to a funeral. But in this case, they have, they have a, a, a clothing item that is unique to mourning. It's burlap. It's a, it's a sackcloth that they put on. They put on ashes. There is no mistaking what this person is up to. When you see a person wearing these clothes, it means they are in despair. They're, they're weeping over what they've lost. And that's what Mordecai is doing here. He's going out in the midst of the city, and he's crying out with a loud and bitter cry. And in verse 2, he visits his cousin at the palace. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. There was a law against this. The king loves to party. Throws a bunch of parties in the book of Esther. He likes drinking. He likes having a good time. He doesn't want sad people to spoil that. So that's just against the law. You can't come in here if you're mourning. So he's wearing the, the sackcloth and the ashes, and he's not permitted to enter. But all of God's people, all of God's people are expressing their loss. Look at verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The people of God are in despair. And one of the things that I note here is we need to do a better job of, of shaping and informing this worldview that fits with the scriptures. We need to be willing to feel what we feel and to express loss. It is not super spiritual to look at circumstances that are awful and to pretend that it's okay. That is not the spiritually mature thing to do, to look at stuff and just go, you know what, it's fine, I'm going to be fine. No, that is, that is false. The Bible gives us, here in an example, but all over the scriptures, it gives us a category called lament. That when things are not going well, because we live in a broken world, we live as fallen people, and we experience all kinds of trauma and loss, and the appropriate response is to mourn. In fact, there are many sections in scripture an entire book, even, is called Lamentations. It's just an extended reflection on grief. And things not going well and the people expressing that. But in the Psalms, they have sections that are just Psalms of lament. Meaning, there are some times when the, the people of God need to come together, and it's not going to be happy, clappy. We're not just going to sit around, pretend everything's fine. You know, hurrah, God is good. No, there are moments where you just have to look at the brokenness of the world, and you have to grieve. And that's appropriate. And that's what's going on here in verses 1 to 3. The people are devastated by the news, and they are laying in sackcloth and ashes. Well, then we move into the dialogue or the discussion between Mordecai and Esther in verses 4 to 14. Now, Mordecai is going to bring the situation to Esther's attention, and he has a request that he's going to make to her. So, again, he's at the gate, but he cannot go in. And verse 4 says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. But the sense I get is she didn't know. She's insulated from the problems that are going on out in the real world because she's in the palace. But when she finds out that her cousin is at the gate in clothing of mourning and he's weeping and crying bitterly, she's disturbed by that. And so the first thing that she does, and this is what we often do, she tries to give a superficial treatment to the problem. She says, send him some clothes. Look at verse 4 at the end there. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, 
so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Often this is what we do. When there's a problem, we're, tr- we're looking for the quick fix. Okay, he's sad, let's, let's change out the gear and let's get him in here and let's have a conversation. Let's rush to a solution and not really consider the severity of the problem. I, I do this. In, in marriage, when we're in conflict, I quickly apologize without thinking about the things that I've done that have provoked the conflict. But certainly, when we're dealing with complex issues, when we're dealing with the brokenness in, in our world, the answer is never going to be, let's figure out a quick fix here. Let's just rush to a solution. Oftentimes, that is not helpful, and Mordecai indicates as much when he says, look, I'm not interested in changing clothes here. There is something going on that you need to be made aware of. So he cannot come in. They locate a mediator. Look at this, verse 5. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. They, since he's out there and she's inside the palace, they now have a mediator named Hatak going between them. Now, Mordecai offers up a pretty detailed report of the things that are happening. Mordecai wants to tell Esther what is going on in the world around her and all of the details surrounding this event. Look at verses 7 and the beginning of verse 8. It says, Mordecai told Hatak all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave Hatak a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. Here's what he's doing. He is giving the information that she needs in order that she could be brought up to speed. But the commentators all point this out. This is very detailed stuff. It is surprising that he knows the intricacies of the conversations behind closed doors. And it's surprising that he knows the exact sum of money. But what he's doing then is he is giving a detailed report of what is going on in the world outside the palace. Now, this is important for us because when we're dealing with issues, here's what I've seen in the last couple of years, and, and Melody was talking about it a moment ago. In the age of information, we are full of misinformation. And when things are going poorly, what do we do? We don't look into what's really going on. We quickly try to locate a voice that'll tell us what we want to hear, and we perpetuate that misinformation. We're not willing to do the homework of going, what is really going on here? And so even even in terms of hearing that something happened, and we don't even bother looking into it, and we just assign some value to that, and we go, well, this is happening somewhere, and I'm not for that. And we don't even really know what's happening there. As Christians, we must do better. We must be willing to look into what is truth. In the words of Fran Schaefer, true truth. Everyone calls their claim truth, but we need to be willing to say, what is really going on, and can I accurately determine what that is and report that as well? Well, the request then comes on the heels of the report, so Hatak should show the decree to Esther, explain it to her, and here it is, and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So he goes there to make this request to the queen, and she responds in this way. The first thing that she says is, essentially, Mordecai, do you understand what you're asking me? Do you understand the severity of what you're asking me to do? 
This is dangerous. I know you want me to go to the king, but this will be a a, a dangerous thing for me to do. So look at verses 10 and 11. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. This is the law. You can't just go in. She goes on to explain, there's a provision though, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king uh, into the king these 30 days. She's saying, what you want me to do is incredibly dangerous. To go unbidden to the king actually puts her in jeopardy legally. The law says if she does that, she's punishable by death. Unless, of course, the king makes that provision for her, her and holds out the scepter, but, but that's pretty unlikely because Listen, the the relationship has grown cold. She's not even seen the king in 30 days. So she's saying, my relationship here is very tenuous. Like, that I'm here is pretty incredible, but but I don't have this confidence that I'm always going to be here. In fact, there's a precedent with this story, isn't there? What happened to the last queen? When she was bold enough to stand up for herself, she was deposed. So she's got to, Esther's got to be thinking, this is reckless, Like that you would want me to just go unbidden to the king, this actually feels pretty reckless. And furthermore, think about what it would feel like for her to be in that position, to be, in a sense, nobody from nowhere and to be elevated to the queen and in the palace and with all the comforts and all of the provisions and all of the attendance. And and there's there's also a sense in the story where we have to say, there are moments where we, we just feel like, are you kidding me? Like, you want me to sacrifice all this? this? You want me to take everything that I've worked so hard to attain and, and you're willing to say, just lay it all out there and potentially lose it? And that's what, that's what Esther is saying to Mordecai here. Do you understand what you're saying to me? This is no small thing. But Mordecai persists. He continues to assert the importance of her doing this in verses 12 to 14. He makes three loaded assertions about the circumstances. The first is, don't assume that you can maintain a posture of safe distance here. Just because you're in the palace, just because you're the queen, does not mean that you will be safe. Look at verses 12 and 13. And then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Don't think that just because you're in there, you're going to be safe. Eventually, it will be found out that you are one of us. And so you're going to lose it regardless. Do not assume that you can maintain this posture of distance and safety. A second assertion that he makes, though, is that relief is coming. Now, this is incredible because this really does point to that there must be a God because if there isn't, this does not make sense but he really does believe that salvation is coming. In verse 14, he says, Relief will come even if not from you. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. These are God's people, and they have a history of getting saved. They have a history of getting saved when it looks like there's no no way forward. 
right? What happened to them when they were being pursued by the Egyptians and they were between the Egyptians and the sea? They said, wait on the Lord, watch what he does. And God opens up the water. They have a history of being saved repeatedly. So, so I think Mordecai is drawing on his theology and he's saying, look, there's a God and this God is able to do something here. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but, but listen, either you can be a part of it or, or, or you can be absent from it, but it's going to happen. Relief will come for God's people. He's making that second assertion there. Then thirdly, he says, oh, and by the way, maybe you are the instrument through which salvation could come. Maybe you're here, not circumstantially, but providentially. Maybe you're here because God wants you here. Verse 14, and who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows if maybe the reason why you have this position is so that you might wield it for God's glory. You might be in the palace to bring about this saving work of God. So he's talking here about providence. He's talking about how God positions people in the places where he wants them to accomplish God's good and perfect will. An an example of this would be the story of Joseph. Joseph was a man who was sold into slavery by his own family. He was left for dead, and and he lived a life of of trauma. He went from one poor situation to another. Now, the favor of God was with him, and it continually persisted. So he kept experiencing the kindness of God in all these different situations, but he was arrested for something he did not do. He was left in a prison, Um, and eventually, through the providence of God, he ends up becoming the second most important person in all of Egypt. And he has a plan for a famine that's coming and how he, how he can store up grain so that during a season of famine, they will have enough to eat. He ends up in that position and he ends up, lo and behold, as an instrument that God uses to save God's people. He ends up in a position where his brothers have to come to him to receive grain to eat. And the Bible says this was not just happenstance. It's not like Joseph just somehow ended up in Egypt and somehow had this position and somehow had the, the, the means to accomplish this, the Bible says this is God's doing. Psalm 105 verse 17 puts it like this. God had sent a man ahead of them, ahead of the people of God. God did this. He sent this man there, Joseph, sold as a slave. So, okay, you're breaking my categories here, but this is saying God is in control and he's able to use even the awful choices of other people to accomplish his purposes. He sent Joseph ahead as an instrument to bring about his salvation. So here's Mordecai looking at Esther and saying, maybe the providence of God has you right where you need to be. Maybe it's for such a time as this that you are here. Consider that. But the providence then causes us to reflect on how he positions each of us, right? He he puts us where we need to be for for God's glory. Acts 17 makes it specific. It reads like this in verse 26. He made, God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. You go, "Why why was I born when I was born? Why do I live in the state line area? Some of you go, why are we in Illinois, right? We, we look at the circumstances, but the Bible says, no, this is the allotment from God, both the time and the place of our dwelling. This is God's doing. And so we have to consider the same question. Maybe for such a time as this, you're here. And this is not accidental, but this is purposeful 
in the plan of God. Well, a few things before we move on. One of the things to consider here is how God uses all kinds of different people. He uses a cousin in Mordecai to raise the report and make the request, but he uses Esther here, a, a lady who's in a position of political power and authority, and he uses her. And in the words of Pastor Timothy Keller, he, he uses all kinds of people in all different places. Some of the contemporaries like Ezra and Nehemiah were also being used by God to restore the people of God in their position. So, like Keller says, so he's using here a religious worker, an urban planner, and a politician. He's using men and women. He's using all these different people, and all of us have a role to play in the work of God. So, around here, we're big on this idea. We're not trying to just get everyone in here to become a pastor or a missionary. That would be awesome. But we also need to deploy a bunch of doctors and educators and salespeople, and we need to deploy all of us into all the different industries. Because all of us have a role to play in the purposes of God. And where you are is not accidental. God is able to use you for his own glory. Now, often we despise this. I worked with teens for a number of years in the student ministry, and one of the things I noted was they were always looking for the next thing. I can't wait to be out of here. I can't wait to be in college. I can't wait to get on with my life. And the thing that God consistently reminded me to remind them was, don't waste your here and now. Like, don't waste this moment anticipating what the next one might look like. Be present here and now, because for such a time as this, God has placed you here. So what does it look like to be faithful in your school right now? What does it look like? Some of you are restless right now. You're wondering, am I where I'm supposed to be, and shouldn't I be looking for something else that God might use me a little differently in, and, and, and I want to say to you, maybe you're right where you need to be. And God wants you to change your mindset from, let me quickly get out of here so I can do something more significant. Maybe God wants to say to you, I've got you there on purpose. Are you using this assignment, this allotment, this place that I've put you in? Are you using all of that appropriately? Well, this was a big deal for me. Actually, when I was doing student ministry, I was restless. And I was wondering what it was going to look like. And I sat down with a pastor uh, in Kenosha, and we had lunch together. And there was a line that he said that had a profound uh, effect on me. He, he said to me, don't neglect the providence of God. Hearing my story, hearing all these details, the things that I was passionate about, and he just looked at me and said, that's all fine and well, but don't neglect God's providence in this. You are the youth pastor at a specific church with a specific group of kids don't assume that that's all wrong. Maybe God has you right where he wants you. And I wonder if that's true for some of you as well. God has you right where he wants you, so pay attention to the work of God in your life. Well, another thing that we need to consider is how God might use the position that we have for the benefit of other people. I heard a story about a Hispanic pastor speaking at a, at a pastor's conference, and he was saying to a to a bunch of probably pastors like me with congregations like, like us. And this Hispanic pastor was saying, preaching from Esther chapter 4, tell your people that there are people who need them. Tell your people that they are like Esther and they need to consider how they might wield their affluence, their position of power, their clout. Tell them that there are people who need them don't let them sit comfortably 
and just think all is well with the world when there's a bunch of chaos going on outside the city gates. Please tell them to do something about that. We have to wrestle with, there are things going on in our world where we can try to insulate ourselves from it, but we have to recognize maybe God has us where we're at with the things that we have so that we could be a blessing to other people. And we can't just cling to that and go, well, this is mine, I earned it. Look, God brought me here. All the blessings, these are, these are on me. No, 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 maybe God has us where we are so that we might think, how could we sacrifice for the good of other people who are in a desperate condition? Well, one of the questions that maybe is going on in this story as well is, can God still use me? Because for Esther, there's probably a sense in this moment where she's going, look, I've made a lot of compromises to be where I'm at. I've made some poor choices along the way. I've hidden my identity. I, I've, I've done some unethical things along the way. Are you sure that God would even have me? Does he even want me? And some of you have brought that question before me quite seriously. There are some things that have landed me in the situation that I'm in, and maybe God is just tired of me. And maybe the reason why I'm in the situation I'm in is because this is some form of, of punishment or, or just maybe even you know, God just stepping away for a minute going, I'm tired of this one. But the truth is God is able and eager to work with us right where we are. He looks at Esther and he doesn't go, okay, yeah, you've compromised. No, he says, look, you're, you're, I'm going to use you mightily. But you have a decision to make. And that's where we land here this morning. The decision of the queen in verses 15 to 17. Will Esther identify with God and his people? That's the big question. Will she identify with what God is up to and God's people? Now, this will be a very costly thing for her to do, but is she willing to make that sort of commitment in this moment? Is she willing to make this decision? Well, she is, and she does, but she prepares for it. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She says, we're going to prepare for this because it is such a risky maneuver. Let's fast and pray. Now, they don't say pray in the text. Again, the, the narrator is pretty clever here. But that's what's going on. They are not going to eat in order that they could appeal to the God who could do something here. And they're going to do this over the course of time. And then at the end of that allotted period of time, she's going to go to the king and make that incredible request. But she comes to the point where she says, look, I don't know how this is going to play out, but I know this is right. And if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. But, the, but I'm in this moment making a decision to align myself with the God who is and the thing that he's doing in this world, and his people. And even if that means it costs me everything, all of my comfort, all of the privilege that I have, if it costs me my life, it's worth it. This is the moment of decision. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, that's what she calls it, the moment of decision. And this is where we all have to reckon with God here. Are we willing to make that sort of radical radical assessment of ourselves. I am with God and with his people, come what may. Even if I die, I have in him all that I need. Well, she 
does that, obviously, and it transforms her. It changes her identity. So now her identity is no longer just bound up in the position that she has. No longer is she just kind of identifying as the queen of Persia and the one who lives in the palace with all of the benefits. No, all of a sudden her identity is being transferred from the circumstances that could describe her life to this one overarching reality. I belong to God. That decision then changes her life. And in fact, Karen Jobes in her commentary, she points that out. She goes, up until this point, Esther is this character that things are just happening to. She's told to do this by her cousin, okay. The king says this to her, okay. She's passive, cruising through the story, things are just happening to her. But when she makes this decision, it changes her. In fact, Jobes points out 14 times in the book of Esther, she's called queen. But 13 of those 14 times happen after this moment. She is a new woman, and she is being used mightily by God. Look at this. Now she's in charge. Verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All of a sudden, she has this gospel confidence, and she says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fast, we're going to pray, and I'm going to go, and I might die. And moving throughout the rest of the storyline, what do we find? Esther taking charge. Esther leading. Esther devising a plan in alignment with what God is up to to save the people. So when you make this decision, when you say, I am going to follow God, it is not a downgrade. It is costly, right? The Lord said, the Lord, when people would come to Jesus and they would say, I want to follow you, and he'd go, really? Are you sure? You better count the cost. This is not going to be easy for you. But when people made that decision and they say, yes, I will, even if it means I have to die, if I perish, I perish, what happens to them? They become radically transformed individuals, people with a gospel confidence who, can, who are emboldened by the Spirit of God and can actually be instruments that God uses to change the world. So what I'm encouraging you to consider today is making that radical decision. And, and guys, this is so different from just being kind of marginally involved with God. There are a lot of people who can call themselves Christians. Yeah, I'm a Christian. That's, yeah, that's just who I am. But it isn't the dominant force in their lives. This is a moment where you say, this is no longer an aspect of my life that I can keep hidden if I want, that if it's not convenient for me, I just kind of put it aside for a moment. No, this becomes the, the main feature of my life. I belong to God, and I relate to God's people. Are you willing to make that decision and experience that transforming work of the Spirit of God? Well, finally, as we close up here today, Esther points us to the good news of the gospel in the sense that she is acting in a way that aligns to what Christ is willing to do. Now, she's reluctant, okay, because she's like the rest of us, imperfect and fallen and flawed. She, she looks at the situation and she hesitates. I don't know if this is a good idea. But what she does, she puts herself in a situation where she's able to say, I will sacrifice myself for the good of others. And when she does that, who is she behaving like? The Lord. The Lord, Jesus himself, who said, look, I'm not going to grasp, this is Philippians chapter 2, I'm not going to cling to my position. I'm not going to hold on to equality with God as something to be maintained. But he emptied himself so that he might become, so he might identify with us. And Philippians 2 describes it in this way. He became a servant, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what was he doing there? 
He was sacrificing himself for other people who so desperately needed it. He was performing salvation for us. He was saying, I will give up all of my rights and all of my privileges and all of my comfort and all of my glory, and I will die for people who don't deserve it. That's the good news of the gospel that we cling to, that we say we have a king who did that for us. He doesn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He says, when I die, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I will be handed over, and I will be tried, and I will be beaten and crucified, but I will rise. He says, when I die, and he does, he dies in our place. He says, it is finished, and he performs for us our salvation. So my question is, will you claim him? Will you make that decision today? This is the moment of decision. Will you say, he is my Lord? God is my father. These people, the church, they are with me. I align my life to the purposes of God. And if you will, then you will be radically transformed by that gospel. You will be able to look at all the resources that you have and say, how can I use this for the betterment of other people in more desperate situations than me? How can I now, with gospel confidence, how can I, being emboldened, go out into the world and go to my place of work, recognizing that God has assigned this for me so I might display his glory to a watching world? Let's be the church on mission because we're following the Lord who is willing to die and rise for us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now, knowing that decisions have to be made. And sometimes we, in a moment like this, some of us are just thinking, I'm going to push this one off. Uh, this doesn't feel like something I should do right now. But Lord, by your spirit, would you help each and every one of us to recognize the, the significance of, of a moment like this, where we can say, today, today, I claim Christ as Lord and King of my life. And Lord, would that truth radically change us so we might more faithfully be your people, living on mission in this fallen and broken world, but bringing you glory in every place that you send us, in every assignment that you have allotted to us. Help us to be your people for your glory. Amen. Amen.